This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today's topic is using research and education to make good decisions. So, you ask, why should educators be concerned about educational research? What relevance does it have to our everyday teaching practice? And you've all heard the common litany, ah, it's just a bunch of theory. You can make research say anything you want. Ivory Tower researchers don't know what it's like in the trenches. It doesn't work that way in the real world. And on and on and on. And I sigh here. So let me address some of these. First, theories and hypotheses. Educational research is used to create the theories upon which we design educational policies and procedures. Hopefully, when governments don't get involved, uh, editorial comment there, sorry. Theories help to organize relevant empirical facts. Now, empirical means they can be observed or measured. They do this in order to create a context for understanding phenomena. Sometimes people try to dismiss an idea or a practice with which they do not agree by saying it's just a bunch of theory. Meaning, I guess, that the theoretical realm is somehow far removed from the practical realm, perhaps even having a different set of laws that govern it. But this would be a misunderstanding of what a theory is. A theory is a way to explain a set of facts. Put another way, if reality were a dot-to-dot picture, a theory would be a way to connect a set of data dots. However, varying theories connect different data dots differently, resulting in a wide variety of pictures and practices. Thus, varying theoretical perspectives, well based on a set of empirical data, can often advocate different practices or practical notions. An example would be behavioral learning theory and cognitive learning theory. Both of these are based on solid empirical evidence. Now, theories are not meant to be internal entities or eternal entities. Sorry about that. They are designed to exist only as long as they continue to explain facts or connect the relevant data dots. When an abundance of new data are shown to conflict with established theories, they're discounted or restructured. You can't put new wine in old wineskin. Some common educational theories include constructivist learning theory, holistic learning theory, drive reduction theory, levels of processing theory, multiple intelligence theory, social learning theory, situated learning theory. You get the idea. Now, a theory is often confused with a hypothesis. A hypothesis is an untested conjecture. A hypothesis is the first part of a study or experiment. Here, the researcher says things like, I think that blank, or what will happen to X when Y is present, or I wonder about blank. This thinking 
is then put in the form of a research question or questions. In a formal quantitative experiment, this becomes the basis of a null hypothesis, which is then either supported or rejected by collecting data during the experiment. However, in qualitative or descriptive studies, data are collected to answer or explore the question. Finally, theories can often be used to justify a practice or a procedure for which there may not be direct research-based evidence. For example, in one of my undergraduate classes in education, students are taught how to use creative dramatics to enhance learning not just in language arts, but in science and social studies classes as well. One day a student asked me if there was any research to show that using creative dramatics in a science classroom did indeed increase learning. Now, I don't know if any studies have been conducted specifically to examine the effects of creative dramatics in learning in science. However, the levels of processing theory states that when information is manipulated or processed at deeper levels, we're better able to understand, remember, and retrieve it for later use. Constructivist learning theory tells us that creativity, higher order thinking, and social interaction all enhance learning. Holistic learning theory suggests that when students are able to make personal connections with what they're learning, they learn more and learn more deeply. Deeper levels of processing, creativity, higher order thinking, social interaction, and personal connections are all components of creative dramatics. Therefore, I could tell my students with a fair amount of confidence that creative dramatics can be used to enhance learning in science. The big point here is this. Educational research is a key factor in enabling school administrators, principals, teachers, and parents to make sound decisions. Teachers and schools have a tremendous effect on student learning and achievement. This effect is more likely to be positive if the decisions related to policy, curriculum, and teaching practices are made based on what a body of research has determined to be best practice. Not one study, but a body of research. Unfortunately, this is not always the case. I'll describe some general approaches that are often used to make educational decisions. The first one is personal experience or anecdotal evidence. Sadly, Educational decisions are sometimes made on personal experience. You may have tried a strategy or approach or had a particular experience, and this becomes the basis of all future decisions. For example, I tried cooperative learning once and it didn't work. This is called anecdotal evidence, and while it's very powerful because of the personal connections, it's not a very sound approach to making decisions. In the same way, everyone who has been to first grade seems to be an expert on education. Everyone who has been through a teacher preparation program seems to be an expert on how we should prepare teachers. That is 
personal experience or anecdotal evidence. While powerful, it's not very effective. It's like looking through a, a tube or a peephole. The second one is one or two studies. Here, an educator or a decision maker starts out with a personal opinion or a preconceived idea of the way they think things should be or how they should do it. Then they locate one or two studies to support this view. This is also not a very sound approach to decision making because of the possibility of selecting studies that are limited, flawed, or biased. This is similar, this is a pseudoscience approach and it's too often used. Now, can you make research say anything you want? No, not if you look at the broad spectrum of studies. But it is very likely that you can find one or two outliers, that you can find some incomplete or poorly designed studies to support a particular point of view. However, this is likely to happen if the study has not been peer-reviewed, meaning that you're going to find these poorly designed studies if it's not been peer-reviewed. And remember, research is not research unless a study has been subjected to blind peer review by a group of peers. For this reason, you should always be skeptical of scientific studies, I put that in quotes, presented by for-profit companies or corporations or groups that are intent on selling a product or political organizations that have an agenda. All right, that's the second one, the one or two studies to make decisions. The third is the famous person approach to making decisions. This is when decisions are made based on the statements of a well-known person. Now, a bit of history for you. William Bennett, the former Secretary of Education under the Reagan administration, received a Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy from Williams College and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Texas and a law degree from Harvard. With this background, he was named Secretary of Education by Ronald Reagan in 1985. Hmm, hmm. Now, he has had much to say about education over the years, all of which should be taken with many grains of salt as their statements based on philosophy and ideology, not on research-based theory. His recommendations should not be considered research-based or set in a solid theoretical context. Similarly, the statements of politicians, newspaper columnists, TV commentators, famous scientists, world leaders, or even podcast presenters are all of interest as general statements, but they should not be used as the sole basis for making educational decisions. In all things you must say, show me the research, show me the data. The fourth way of making decisions is tradition and folklore. Here, decisions in a classroom or school are made or a particular practice is continued because we've always done it this way. 
Case in point is the weekly spelling test that's given in most elementary schools every Friday. Monday to Thursday, students study a list of words in isolation outside any meaningful context that are selected by the textbook company. On Fridays, students are asked to recall the exact spelling of these words. This process is supposed to improve students' ability to spell. Yet, I have yet to find research evidence to show that doing this improves students' ability to spell under real-life writing conditions. This is what Donald Grave calls games conditions. While this idea seems to make sense, there's no research to support this over other methods used for developing students' spelling ability. And why is it done? Because we've always done it this way. Likewise, the common saying that a teacher should not smile until Christmas or that student behavior problems can be solved by getting tough are both bits of folklore that are often repeated as truth. These are based on the assumptions that an effective teacher has a stern demeanor and is able to control students. Control and manipulation are valued over relationships, shared goals, synergistic learning, community building, and cooperation. But if simply being stern and getting tough had any research to suggest that they actually worked, we would certainly be writing about these in our books and journal articles. We'd also be teaching get-tough techniques to our students in our teacher preparation programs. But they do not work. As behavioral learning theory describes, simply getting tough is not very effective in changing behavior, whether one is dealing with mice in a Skinner box or human beings in a second-grade classroom. Because the mouse or student simply learns to avoid the punishment or aversive conditioner. And when the punishment disappears, the behavior reappears. The fifth way decisions are often made is based on magic bullets and flashy new packages. This is when pedagogical decisions in schools and classrooms are made based on the claims of for-profit manufacturers of educational materials. Do not believe what's written on the outside of the package, even if they use the word research. Again, research is not research without peer review. Even though commercial programs may claim to have the ultimate answer for teaching a particular skill or subject, there are no magic bullets. There is not a miraculous cure or single best method for teaching anything. Instead, there are many research-based strategies and pedagogical techniques, all of which should be intelligently adopted and adapted to meet the needs of particular teachers and learners in particular situations. So what are these research-based strategies? Well, this is where you come in, the knowledgeable practitioner who continues to grow and learn by being well-informed, by reading academic journals and attending conferences and taking classes. A teacher is not a finished teaching product, 
in four semesters of any teacher preparation program. I don't care what the program is. The sixth way decisions are made, and the best one, is based on research-based theory and a synthesis of peer-reviewed studies. This is the optimal decision-making process. Here, schools and teachers look at a body of research or make decisions that are solidly supported by research-based theory. This reinforces the need to have well-educated teachers, principals, and administrators with a substantial body of knowledge related to teaching and learning. Indeed, experts in the field have and use more knowledge to solve problems. Experts in any field have more knowledge and use more knowledge to solve problems and make decisions when compared to novices. Now, it's not possible to provide all the knowledge that teachers need in two years of any teacher preparation program. And this is why it is so important to have some plan for continued staff development for both teachers and administrators. And this is why it's so important that we have these national organizations like the International Literacy Association that synthesize years of research the National Council of Teachers of English synthesize years of research and make that uh, consumable to the everyday teacher. These are important organizations in literacy, and that's my field, but math and social studies and science each have their national organizations. So, in summary, educational research is used to create the theories that are used to design educational policies and practices Ideally, a theory is a way of explaining a set of facts. A hypothesis is an untested conjecture. Research-based theory can be used to justify practices and policies. And educational research helps teachers and school administrators to make good decisions. And it should be a synthesis of peer-reviewed studies, not one or two studies or a national panel of something or other. It should be a synthesis of peer-reviewed studies. This has been the Reading Instruction Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson.